Open your Bibles, if you would. Matthew, chapter number 26 is where we're in today. And um, we've been, uh, last few weeks, we've been kind of at a breakneck pace going through Matthew. Um, this week, it, we're kind of slowing down just a little bit. Um, not going slowly by any means, but slowing down a little bit. And here's what I mean by that. Matthew has 28 chapters. We have three chapters left. Um, we are going to finish the book of Matthew the week after Easter. So April 16th, we will be finishing up the book of Matthew. So your taxes will be done and you should be able to pay all, all attention. Matthew chapter 26 today, as we get into this, um, we have been for um, several weeks in the last week of Jesus' life. We've been going through just the last final chapters before his crucifixion, his death, burial, and his resurrection. Now, as we come to chapter number 26, we are just days away. Days away. If you're familiar um, somewhat with the Easter story, maybe even the last few weeks, the things we've been talking about, some of Jesus' teachings, you say, well, that's familiar, but that's not. This is, that's not. There's some more obscure. There's some that are um, pretty commonly told if you have a background around church. As we go from here to um, really the end of Matthew, if you spend time around a church, you'll find many of these stories to be um, things that you're familiar with. Maybe you'll see some details that pop out that maybe weren't there before. Maybe you'll see certain things. But as a whole, you'll find that these are relatively familiar passages if you have that background. If you don't, don't worry, because we're going to walk through it piece by piece. And I want to help you have a full understanding so you can appreciate all the things that are going on here over these next several weeks. As we jump into Matthew 26 today, um, this, this chapter, um, the way that Matthew arranges the first portion of this chapter, um, it's a little bit uh, dizzying. How many of you guys, um, you love like roller coaster rides or like carnival rides, anything like that? Who's like addicts to those kind of things? Okay. Who is like, get that as far away from me as humanly possible? All right. That's pretty split. That's a pretty split crowd right here. And then everyone else, I'm just going to assume that you're just like, meh. Take it or leave it. Um, I'm just going to assume that. Um, I, uh, I don't mind roller coasters. It's been a, a minute since I've been on one, but I don't mind roller coasters. You know what I hate? I hate the spinning rides. The spinning rides. Um, and the spinning rides, it just, it just, I get dizzy. I feel like I'm going to just, you know, um, I just, it's, I just, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it. Um, I didn't like, like, um, I, when I was in uh, middle school and high school as part of a youth group, and um, we would do different games and things like that at camps or whatever, um, and, and there would be the games, they would have you, like, put your head on the bat and spin around ten times and then go do some weird coordination thing. No. No, I don't want to do that. I have no interest in participating in those things. It's just not for me. This chapter is kind of dizzying, I'm going to be honest with you. Because what we're going to see, uh, what we're going to see is we're going to see this pattern. We're going to see um, a pattern of embracing what God has for individuals or a pattern of uh, obedience. And then we're going to see a pattern of rejection or disobedience. And then we're going to see embracing and obedience and rejection and disobedience. And embrace, you get the point, right? Um, so really, there are kind of five like segments to this. And they all 
tie together nicely. So it's not five independent things, but it's just, it's, it's interesting as we watch this in verse 26, we just see this cycle. We just see this over and over again on repeat. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And it's just, it's dizzying to watch this play out. Um, one of the things though, as we get into this, one of the things that I think is really important for us to understand before we're like really harsh and quick to judge um, all of the people involved here um, is that that's kind of reflective of our lives too, right? Um, how many of you sometimes, how many of you, maybe let's start with this. How many of you know someone that maybe they'll think out loud and it's a little dizzying? Anyone? <laughs> um, maybe you hear um, one of my kids uh, likes to just well, you know what this, and then you know what that, and you know what he's for. And so it's just, you just sit back and you watch, but the intellect a little bit, it's a little bit like mystifying as he's bouncing around from one thing to the next. But if we're really being honest here, that's a lot of us. Uh, we tend to be hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, right? Um, we have those days that we get up and we just feel like taking on the world. And we have the days that we're just like, ah, you can't get me out of bed. There's no amount of money that will change that. Um, but spiritually speaking, we often find ourselves in these spaces as well, especially as we are maturing in our faith. As we jump in today, um, I titled this um, Schemes, Spices, Silver, and Sheep. Um, and there's just a lot happening that seems disconnected at first glance, um, but I believe there's a unifying theme that Matthew is trying to communicate with us. As we get into this, I want to start with this, this premise, Okay. Um, and, and if you've been around church for a while, this may, you, you may be taken aback by this statement, okay? So buckle up. We are all unbelievers. We are all unbelievers. Now, um, without making that statement, just leave that up there for a second. Um, if I were to say, are you a believer or an unbeliever? Many of us would say, I am a believer. I have put my faith in Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and my Savior. I know that I am a sinner and his death, burial, resurrection for me has saved me, brought me into the family of God. And that's a wonderful thing. This is not an accusation to say that that is not true. But can I tell you this? Um, there are areas of your life in which you are an unbeliever. If this weren't true, you would not be a sinner any longer. How many of you are sinners? <laughs> um, we could just take a straw poll, and if you uh, theologically align with our church, you're going to say, yeah, that's me. Um, because the Bible says all have sinned, Romans chapter number three. And so uh, we are all unbelievers in some way, shape, or form. Now, hopefully you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you are what we would call a Christian. This is when we use the biblical term believer, those who believed in Jesus. And as we go through our life, we're constantly trying to examine and find those areas of our life that are not in alignment with Jesus Christ as our Lord, as he reveals these things to us. And this process is called sanctification. Sanctification. It says we become more like Jesus by believing in him more. Isn't that an incredible thing? So as we go through this, I want to kind of begin with that premise. We're all unbelievers in some way, shape, or form. Because I don't want this just to be a message where you look and you say, man, those guys are bad and those guys are bad, but thankfully me, I'm good. Um, if that's your takeaway, um, you're missing something. I really believe that the Bible consistently does this in our lives. Um, it comforts the afflicted while afflicting the comfortable. 
It's the great dichotomy of scripture. I love it. Um, because in those seasons where you need encouragement and you need someone just to come in and pick you up, wow, the scripture can be just the most encouraging thing. Now you're living your life on autopilot and everything's good and you're just comfortable and complacent. Uh, the word of God's also really good at saying, hey, uh, let's fix that. <laughs> it is a great job of afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. As we get into Matthew chapter 26, watch how this passage begins. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming. And so there's a, a feast that's coming in just a couple of days. Uh, and this is the reason that everyone is gathered in Jerusalem. Jerusalem swells at this time of year. It's about five times its normal population. Um, and the Passover is coming. And in the middle of this, Jesus says, the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. The son of man is a phrase that Jesus used to describe himself. And so he's saying, I will be delivered up to be crucified. And so here Jesus is prophesying of his death. He's giving the timing. He's saying, guys, it's happening in two days. In two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up. So he's making this statement, um, which there's a lot to this statement. Just really quick, if I can throw out to you. Um, the Jews don't execute people on uh, holidays. And uh, the Jews are the people at this moment, we're going to see in a second, that don't like Jesus. But Jesus is saying, on this Jewish holiday, I am going to die. And then not only that, but he's also saying, watch this. He's saying how he's going to die. He's saying he'll be delivered up to be crucified. Do you know how many Jewish leaders um, practice crucifixion? Zero. <laughs> Crucifixion wasn't a Jewish thing. Um, Jews would actually, they would stone people for execution. That was their, um, uh, their capital punishment, if you will. Crucifixion was a very Roman thing. A very Roman thing. And so all of this should be kind of interesting to you as you're reading through the Bible, because to this point, where has Jesus had conflict with Romans? Where have Jesus and the Romans done this? They haven't. They haven't. Jesus and the religious leaders? Oh, man, like, I mean, just on repeat. The last three chapters, he's just scathing. But at the same time, now what is he saying? He's saying, in two days, I'm going to be delivered up to be crucified. And what is Jesus saying? Is Jesus running away from this? He understands this thing to be true. He sees it coming on the horizon. How is his posture towards this? Is he, going, is he, is he running away from it, or is he embracing it? Well, the latter, right? He's embracing the thing that's taking place. And I want you to understand here. Um, as you and I, we talk about how we are all unbelievers. Jesus is the perfect model of faith. Jesus understood the things that were about to take place. Um, we're going to see later that there are times that Jesus, in fact, next week, um, we'll see that there, Jesus isn't like in love with the idea of the things that are about to happen to him. Okay. He's not giddy about being beaten and crucified. Um, that's not what's happening. But he does embrace what God has in front of him. And I want you to understand this as we continue to press forward. Faith means following God regardless of the consequences. How many of you, when you make a decision, you like to think through the pros and the cons and kind of weigh all these things out? Um, a few of us, how many of you are just impulsive and you're just like, I'm going to do this because it feels good? All right, a couple of you, a couple of you. Um, you know, it, it, we all have those moments, but oftentimes what we do is we say, okay, like what are, hopefully we think about the consequences of our actions. Not that we always do a perfect job, but sometimes we, we should, right? Jesus here understands the consequences of what he's about to go through, right? If anyone does, he does. 
And yet he doesn't shy away from this, but he follows after the place that God has for him. And so faith here, we see Jesus demonstrating this and following God regardless of the consequences. Uh, but, but watch this. Um, we're going to see a sharp contrast. Remember I told you about these turns? It's like, it's like walking through a bunch of hairpin turns here um, as we're reading Matthew 26, because we're about to loop back around in verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, because it's a holy day and we ought to respect, no, <laughs> lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, in these verses, um, we, get, we get insight into a couple of things. Um, and I'm going to give you some historical background so we can uh, really appreciate all that's going on here. Um, when Matthew records, verse number three, he says the chief priests, plural, um, really interesting situation that actually happened in this time. Uh, there was a high priest that um, is not mentioned here within this uh, passage. Um, there's a high priest in this time called um, Annas. Annas. A-N-N-A-S is the traditional spelling in English. Annas. And uh, Annas was the high priest um, for Israel. And traditionally speaking, going all the way back to the Old Testament, the high priest would serve until his death. Um, they would be that high priest. And so um, Annas was the high priest, but something came up. Annas was very influential. He was kind of a senior statesman for the Jewish leaders. Um, and the Romans didn't like Annas. And so you know what the Romans came in and did? The Romans were like, hey, Annas isn't going to be the high priest anymore. Caiaphas is. Now, it has to stay in the family, and Caiaphas is actually the son-in-law of Annas. But they're like, at least it's not Annas. Annas, you're out. Caiaphas, you're in. Um, now, according to God's law, there is no precedent for the Roman leaders being able to come in and, and do this, manipulate the Jewish religious system. But these guys had obviously gone along with it, right? They said, oh, okay, all right, you know what, well, you know, we'll make do, we'll figure it out. And so what's actually happened is now there are two living high priests in Israel. And so we see the chief priests and the elders gathered together in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. Um, this is part of why they have to specify that his name was Caiaphas, because there were two of them. Okay. But what do they do when they gather together? They plot together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Now, does Jesus know that they're having this conversation, or should Jesus know that they're having this conversation? From an earthly sense, no. But he knows that this crucifixion is coming. Jesus, in his, his knowledge, his understanding of the things that are going on, because understand this, Jesus is not just a good man or a good teacher. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so he understood that these things were coming. But watch this pattern of behavior by these high priests. Um, and this isn't new in Matthew of the religious leaders. Watch in verse number five. They said, so they want to kill Jesus. They said, we need to get rid of him, but not during the feast. Why? Because we don't want to make sacrilege of these holy days. No. Why? They were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the people. Uh, listen, um, in this time, there are um, about five times the population of Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have been anywhere from um, about twenty to 40,000 is our best estimate um, of the population of Jerusalem in the first century. And in this season, it would swell up as pilgrims are just in for the Passover. So you're looking at 100,000 people plus in this city that normally has twenty to 40,000. 
And they feared this group of people. And they were afraid of what they would say about this decision. And so on one hand, we see Jesus who is embracing God's will and what's going on. If these priests actually believed that the right thing to do was take Jesus and remove him from the public spotlight, what should they have done if they actually thought that was the right thing to do? But even here, what we find is we find that these men are too afraid to do anything. And watch with me. Fools fear men today more than they fear God tomorrow. These are foolish men, and how do you know? Well, because they're sitting here saying, oh, the people, oh, the people, oh, the people. Listen, if we have a decision to make about what the right thing or the wrong thing is to do, the people don't get a say, <laughs> okay? Who are you serving, the people or God? Well, these guys were serving the people, but not God, and hey, if that's how they want to go out and they want to live their life, but these individuals are afraid of what men are doing in that moment instead of being afraid of who they ought to be, who was God that sent his son in order to save even them. We're moving at a quick pace. I want to get to, I want to get really to verse number 17. I want to, I want to slow down a little bit when we get there. So watch what's going on in verse number six. They're doing all this stuff. They're gathering secretly, the chief priests, high priests. In verse number six, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And so um, in a first century um, table, a first century setting, um, the way that they would have reclined, this would have been a low table to the ground. Um, and so maybe eight inches a foot off the ground. And it would have been arranged in a uh, large U shape. Servants would have been able to enter in. Whoever was hosting the feast would have been able to enter into the open side of the U or the half circle um, and would have been able to distribute the food. And on the outside, these individuals would have been reclining, actually a very formal way that they're doing this, would have been reclining on their left arm and using their right right arm to participate in um, the eating, to be able to take the food and feeding themselves, passing things around using that right arm. So they're reclining in this setting. It's very different than the way that we would sit at a table here today. And so as they're doing all of this, she comes over and she takes this ointment, ointment and she pours it on his head. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. It's a fun word. Saying, why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. And so they get out and they begin to um, attack this woman for how she is behaving. They begin to attack this woman, which we have reason to believe from the book of John. This is Mary, um, the sister of Lazarus, who was raised. Um, but Matthew doesn't record that specifically. But she comes here, she anoints Jesus, and the disciples get upset. John, in fact, tells us that Judas uh, was the individual here that, that especially led this thing. He was the one, at least the spokesperson for it, saying this should have been taken, this should have been sold and, and given to the poor. And I just, I, it's amazing to me because here in the middle of this, we have this woman, Jesus is about to jump to her defense and say, hey, listen, she's doing the right thing. But even in the middle of her doing the right thing, she has critics. And Judas gets up and Judas says, hey, can you believe this? And he presents as being like this really like, um, he presents as being this um, altruistic, caring individual, right? 
He says, oh man, we could have sold this and given that to the poor and now it's wasted. It's no good. Um, John kind of like pulls back the curtain a little bit. Um, and John tells us about the motives, the reason behind this. Um, and if you want to read John chapter number um, 12, you can see some of this for yourself. Uh, but G, uh, Judas, um, he was the one who he kept the money. So he was the treasurer. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but Judas wasn't exactly a good treasurer um, because Judas was taking this money and spending it on himself. Um, there's a term for that. It's called embezzling. <laughs> Um, and so Judas is taking, and none of the disciples are aware of it at this moment, but it came to light later. Who knows how, but it came to light later. John was aware of it by the time he wrote his gospel. And so uh, Judas here is saying, hey, well, why didn't we take this? Why don't we give it to the poor? And by the poor, he meant himself, but whatever. Ah, come on, the poor. But Jesus stood up and Jesus says this. Why do you trouble the woman? Verse 10. She's done a beautiful thing to me. You will always have the poor with you you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she's done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Hey guys, Bible prophecy fulfilled right there. Um, congratulations, you are witnessing Bible prophecy being fulfilled because Jesus said this woman, everywhere the gospel is proclaimed, people are going to know about her. And now today, whether you came in this room knowing about her or not, today you know about her. And so Jesus says, no, listen, this is happening for my burial. Now remember what he had just told the disciples, uh, likely earlier that day. I'm going to be crucified. And then now he's saying, hey, this is for my burial. I want you to catch this. We're going to see in a couple of weeks that the disciples almost seem to be uh, taken aback by the things that are happening to Jesus. Was Jesus surprised? No. No. Jesus knew what was happening, what was taking place here. Verse number 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him, Jesus, over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. From that moment, he saw an opportunity to betray him. And so here, Matthew is connecting this event, this anointing of Jesus, with Judas' betrayal. And so we see Judas scheming to betray Jesus. Now, um, we don't have a, a lot of understanding about why Judas would do this. You say, Nate, why would Judas betray Jesus? We have some guesses but we don't know in a concrete way. Uh, maybe there was some messianic misunderstanding. Maybe Judas thought that Jesus would be some kind of a, an earthly revolutionary. There are some scholars that even believe that Judas was a member of a group called the Zealots um, and that wanted to overthrow Rome and reinstitute an autonomous um, Hebrew state. Um, and there's not a whole lot of scriptural evidence for that, but some believe that that was the case. Um, some believe that as Jesus corrected that behavior here in the passage we just read, uh, that Judas um, didn't like being corrected. And so maybe he was um, frustrated and upset. And over time, these things have been wearing on him to the point where he said, I am done with this. And remember, we know that Judas looked for opportunities to profit for himself, didn't he? If he was taking, he was embezzling money from Jesus and the rest of the disciples, 
then he's looking for ways to be able to accumulate wealth for himself. And so what do we see happening here? We see that Judas, he went to the chief priests and he said, hey, what will you give me if I turn him over to you? What do you give me? Well, what's he worth to you? And they agree upon a price that's 30 pieces of silver. I think this is fascinating. Um, 30 pieces of silver is actually mentioned a couple of places in the Bible. First place you see it mentioned um, is in the book of Exodus. You go all the way back to um, the second book of the Bible. And in Exodus, that's those 30 pieces of silver, um, that's the price that um, someone would pay a master for his slave, for his servant. Um, so this is not a, uh, a high wage. This is the, the price. This is the price of a servant, the price of a slave. And then in uh, Zechariah chapter 11 is the other place that this is mentioned. And it's a really fascinating passage. I'm going to detour there just really, really quickly because um, I think it's just a fascinating, fascinating thing um, here as Zechariah um, explains his experience with the 30 pieces of silver. Because I want you to see the context of what that actually looks like in this day and in this age that Jesus is um, being betrayed. So Zechariah is written just a few couple hundred years before Jesus is betrayed. So a lot closer in time than Moses' writings. Um, Zechariah chapter number 11. God comes to Zechariah and he says this, Become shepherd of the flock, doomed to slaughter. So what's he saying to Zechariah? He's saying, Zechariah, you're a prophet. And this was really common for God to do with his prophets. He would come and he would say, hey, act out this metaphor for me and prophesy using this illustration. And so he goes to Zechariah and he says, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord. I have become rich. And so, um, but and their own shepherds have no pity on them. And so he's saying, Zechariah, go to this flock that nobody cares about. Go to this flock that nobody cares about and become a shepherd. Become a shepherd there. Um, verse number six. I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor. Uh, people are just, they're behaving wickedly. He said there's no compassion among these people. And uh, go in here and be a shepherd to a flock that no one else cares about. Verse 7, so I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the shepherd traders, the sheep traders, excuse me. I took two staffs, one named Favor, the other named Union, tended the sheep. In a month, I destroyed the three shepherds. What's he saying? He's saying I fired them, okay? Um, I destroyed the three shepherds. I became impatient with them, this is being the sheep, and they also detested me. And so Zechariah comes in, says, what are you guys doing? You're mistreating these sheep. Why do you think that's okay? Just because they're, okay, yeah, they're going to be slaughtered, but why do you think that's all right? You just, you just want your money. You don't have any compassion. So he fires these shepherds, um, but then he becomes frustrated with the sheep, and so the sheep also hate him. <laughs> Fun story, right? And so finally, he gets to the point, verse 9, that he says, I will not be your shepherd. What's to die? Let it die. What's to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed. Those who are left, if anything's left after this is all done, just let them devour the flesh of one another. I could not even care. And so um, verse number 11, it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me, so he's saying, I quit. Um, they, the sheep traders, they were watching me. They knew that it was from the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And so Zechariah is just like beyond impatient at this point. He says, okay, pay me my wages, or if you don't want to pay me, just whatever. I could not care less. And they weighed out as my wages, watch this, 30 pieces of silver. 
what's this the price of? It's the price of a slave. And watch how he, watch how he regards this. Watch how he regards this. The Lord said to me, verse 13, throw it to the potter. And so what does he do? The lordly price at which I was priced by them. <laughs> Dripping with sarcasm here. The lordly sum, the generous amount, the overwhelming kindness that they displayed by giving me 30 pieces of silver for my work. And so he went and he throws it into the uh, temple here, the potter and the temple of the Lord. Uh, and this is a sign of just, hey, listen, the people, the religious have just gone so far away. Listen, I don't even, I don't even want to be a part of this is really what God is kind of saying through Zechariah. And so now we see that same sum, the price of a slave, the price that Zechariah just, he detested the lordly amount. And this is the price that Judas agrees on for Jesus. Hey, how does 30 pieces sound? Fine by me. Better than zero. I'm looking for an opportunity to behave this way. Verse number 17. And verse number 17 begins us with us in uh, what we call the Passover. The Passover. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go to a certain man, say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did it. Jesus had directed and they prepared the Passover. And so what we see is we see this time where this meal is now being gathered together as the people of Jesus are, as the followers of Jesus are gathering together for this, uh, what we call the last Supper. As we go into, as we look at this Passover, um, I think it's important for us to have an understanding of what's taking place here. As Matthew is writing, Matthew's writing, um, assuming a lot of information. Um, he's writing to people that are of Jewish descent mostly. And so they're going to just know as Jesus is doing this, where it's taking place throughout it. Um, I want to take just a minute today. I want to kind of walk you through and show you what that looks like. And so I have a couple volunteers um, Jacob's got a few things for me. And then, uh, Corbin and Keely have so graciously volunteered to participate. Um, and so I'm going to ask these guys to grab their things and to, um, uh, well, these guys, you just, just get up here. Jacob, walk faster. Um, just kidding. Kind of. Um, so watch what's going on. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. As they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. But before we even get to this point, um, this is likely happening on um, Tuesday night. Uh, I'm sorry, Wednesday night of this week, Wednesday night, not with Tuesday night, likely on Wednesday night of this uh, week. Um, the Passover traditionally um, would have taken place a little bit later in the week, but the way that the Jewish calendar kind of functioned, um, evening in our time, actually equated to the beginning of the next day. And so what looks like it's kind of happening here when we reconcile these Gospels is this is taking place in our time, what we would consider the day before, but on the Jewish calendar, the day of. Here's kind of what that would look like. That would be like, um, how many of you celebrate with Thanksgiving breakfast? Anyone? No one? Okay. Um, is it against the rules of Thanksgiving? I mean, it's on Thanksgiving, but we would say that's kind of weird, right? <laughs> That's kind of what's happening here. And so as they gather together, they're gathering together at a different time. Just bring it on up here. Uh, they're gathering together at a different time maybe than many would. And so John kind of points out some of these different things. But as this Passover is celebrated, um, this is less than 24 hours. You're, bro, you got two good legs. I got one and a half good legs. 
All right. Um, come on over here, guys. Come on over here. We're going to have lunch. Do you guys mind if we eat in front of you? Is that okay for you? Don't be too jealous um, because once you know what's in here, you won't be. Um, Corbin, if you want to come over here to the right side, and Keely, I'll put you right here. Corbin, I'm going to give you the Judas, I mean the place of honor. And um, so what would take place is they would kind of take a gathering. And I just have a few of it uh, oftentimes. Um, just buckle up because the, the Passover takes about two hours to celebrate. Um, I'm just kidding. It does take about two hours, but we're going to do it in like 10 minutes, okay? And so uh, what would kind of happen here is they would take and they would pour um, this, these glasses of, uh, glasses of wine, glasses of juice, the fruit of the vine. So I have some uh, Chateau de Welches. We're fancy here today in our plastic cups, the fanciest cups that I could find. Go ahead, and uh, you're going to want that um, for a lot of reasons. And as they would come together, um, they would pour these uh, things. And so when the Bible speaks of the preparation, um, there are a lot of different things that are taking place. They're buying all of the foods that are necessary. They're pouring um, the drink that is necessary. They're getting everything ready for the feast that is about to take place place. And so as they come together, um, they participate in, they pour the first of the drink. This is the first of four drinks. And uh, go ahead and you guys can take this. And um, they would say a blessing. And there was often a longer blessing. They would sing hymns throughout this. I'm going to save time on. Um, but they would consistently give the blessing. It was just quoting from the Old Testament. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. And this will be the first drink. That's going to be the best tasting part of this meal. You can go ahead and you can put those back down here. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of space. What would take place next um, is they would take um, what's traditionally called the carpas. The carpas. Um, does anyone know what's in the carpas? This is delicious. Here, I got you guys. Um, I got you guys some lettuce. This is the second tastiest thing that you're going to have tonight. Why don't you grab your own? And go ahead and um, you can break off a, a piece of that here um, because we're going to dip this in what's called the carpas, the carpas. And this is still practiced um, today. We have... Some people you just can't take them anywhere. So what they would do is they um, still even still take the carpas um, and it would take the lettuce and stir it around in there. Corbin, what does this look like to you? Water. It looks like water. Corbin, do you think it's just water? Do you know what it is? Yeah. <laughs> he says it so enthusiastically. Um, this is actually uh, very heavy salt water. Salt water. Anyone like salt water? It is not delicious. I talked to these guys ahead of time. I let them know what they were getting into. Did he tell you what you were getting into? Okay. Oh, well, I apologize. I should just talk to you myself. All right. Stir it around in there. Stir it around a little bit. And then take and uh, bon appetit. If you were jealous, don't be. Now, traditionally, there would be two cups. There would be a ritual cup and a non-ritual cup. We have one. We're going to go ahead and we're going to... Why would we do that? And that's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. In fact, as they would sit down for Passover, what would happen is the children who are participating in this would say, okay, why are we eating this? This is terrible. Why are we eating this? And this is a question they're supposed to ask. And it gives the head of the household the opportunity to kind of talk about what's going on. And many relate 
this carpas with um, the dipping of Joseph's coat of many colors in the blood of an animal as he was betrayed by his brothers. And this marks the beginning of the time of the Israelites in Egypt. And so this signifies the beginning of all these things that are take place. Deuteronomy 26, if you want to read through that on your own, it gives a little bit of a, of a, a story that goes along with that. And then uh, later, Acts chapter number 7, a man by the name of Stephen um, gives this uh, speech before he dies. And really, it's, it's what that would have looked like in a Jewish first century home. After this, um, there would be some group reading of the Hallel Psalms. This is Psalm 113 and 114. And then they would say a blessing. I'm going to make sure I drink the right thing. Uh, over the second cup, a prayer over the se second cup. So go ahead and take your second cup. Bless are you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. I'm top these up because they're because they're small cups. What we're going to have though is um, as we look at the Passover, um, Gamaliel. This is the uh, first century um, Jewish leader, Gamaliel. Don't spill that. Um, he would teach. And uh, how many familiar? Anyone know the name Gamaliel? If I say that name, anyone familiar with that name offhand? Does it sound familiar to anybody? Okay, it should. Um, Gamaliel is actually mentioned um, in Acts chapter number 5. Um, uh, it might be late chapter 4, um, but I believe it's chapter 5 off the top of my head. Gamaliel was the, um, he was Paul's mentor. Does anyone know the name Paul? Paul was the writer of the Corinthian books. Paul was the writer of, but Gamaliel, very influential, um, first century um, rabbi. And Gamaliel said there are three essentials for the Passover. There's the unleavened bread, which we haven't partaken of yet. There is the bitter herb, which we also have not partaken of yet. Don't be too excited. Um, and then there's the Passover lamb. And he said all the other traditions can kind of come and go, but those three things are absolutely necessary. And so what he would do is he would take, at this point, Jesus would have, being the leader of this group, he would have taken um, the bread. So here, have a piece of unleavened bread. Or um, there are a lot of different varieties of unleavened bread. Basically, all of them are allowable under Jewish law. Um, just what matters about the bread? It's unleavened. Okay. And so this is the next best tasting thing you will eat here. And so um, they would take this and they would pray over it. And it's a little bit different blessing than the cup, but very similar. Uh, Bless are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Not too shabby, a little dry. But then from there, they would take what is called the bitter herb, the bitter herb. And again, this can vary from region to region. Um, they would take this bitter herb. How's that smell for you? <laughs> it's the appropriate response. Do you want to you preview? It is. Yes, it is horseradish. Um, traditionally today, this is often horseradish. Um, and not like, how creamy is that horseradish? Not. Um, this is not like your horseradish sauce. This is actually horseradish. If you want some later, you can have it. Um, you can just have the whole bottle. I don't need it anymore. It's 250 or something at Walmart. Listen, what they would do, though, is the leader of this home, this is part of the essentials for that night, um, is they would take this and explain how this correlates with the pain and sorrow of slavery in Egypt. Exodus chapter number one and how their lives were made bitter and how they needed to be delivered. 
And so Jesus is going through all of these things with his people, with his disciples. And take a, take a nice chunk of that out. Anybody else want some? No? Okay. Ooh. All right. And they would take the bitter herb. <laughs> And they would partake in the bitter herb. Oh. Oh. <laughs> you guys sure you don't want any of this? <laughs> and so now the kids are like really curious. Oh my goodness. I did not preview this ahead of time because I didn't want to do this twice. So you're getting all of it. But here's the thing. Literally, bringing tears to your eyes. You guys, you guys doing that too? You got, yep, all right, cool. We're all in the same boat. Literally bringing tears to your eyes. Why? Why? Why do we do this once a year? Why do we torture ourselves once a year? Hey, it's to remind us of the history that we're anchored in. These are our people. This is where we came from. This is who we are. We're gathering together around this thing. Now, when did Jesus, when did Jesus, um, verse number 20, when did Jesus uh, make these statements that he's making? He's, he reclined at the table. As they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. They, they, they became very upset, very sad. They began to say one to another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And so as we look at this, we're seeing that Jesus is making the statement sometime after they have partaken of these. They only dip. The, listen, um, the Israelite people did not make a habit of these kind of things. This was once a year. They would come together and they would dip together within the uh, karpas and then dip together within the bitter herbs. And he's saying, you've walked through this with me. One of you who have, has put your hand in here with me, you will betray me. We've done this thing together. We are of the same people. Because we're, what is this? This is reminding us of a shared history. We're walking through this together, and, and yet one of you is going to betray me. And here, I want you to understand with me, Jesus, even as he is speaking of, and they're taking this dip, and their eyes are likely still watering from all of this that's taken place. Jesus here, uh, what is he called in the book of Isaiah? He's a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And then as they continue to eat, watch what's going on. You guys, if you guys want to cleanse your palate a little bit with that, we're almost done. If you guys want to cleanse your palate a little bit, we can just, we can take the bread and we can eat. You guys got rid of it too fast. Just kidding. As they're eating, watch what, watch what happens here. So he says, uh, one of you dipped, um, verse 24, the son of man goes as is written to him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke and gave it to his disciples. And so, likely would have been a, a prayer similar to what we read earlier. And they're beginning to eat their bread, and they're going through, and um, Jesus goes, hey, this is my body. 
That strikes a little bit odd. Excuse me, what? <laughs> this, this is my body. What do you mean, Jesus? He said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. Because they're going through and they're processing through this feast. This is likely to have been um, the, the third of the drinks of the four. And he says, this is my cup. This is, uh, this, take this cup. Sorry, look at verse number 27. He took a cup when he had given thanks. And so he gave thanks as he had done so many times before. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the world who creates the fruit of the vine. Oh, and uh, this is my blood. This is my blood. He begins, to, he begins to tell his disciples. And then watch the statement he makes here. It's the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that, that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Thank you guys, and um, you guys, and if you wouldn't mind, Corbin, grabbing uh, this. I want to break down a couple more of these things. I want you to see a couple of other things um, in this passage before we uh, finish up. Clean up after myself. Thank you, guys. Let's give them a hand. What good sports. As they, that night, were taking the bread, they were taking the cup. Jesus speaks these cryptic sayings, you're eating my body. What does he mean by that? What is a, what is a bread? Bread is just basic sustenance, basic necessities. Uh, this is, this is the, the thing that we eat at most every meal, the, the grain that we're taking in. And he's saying, my body will be broken and crushed, but it will become a source of life. Isn't that fascinating? Just as he says, he speaks and he says, man shall not live by bread alone at the beginning of the book, Matthew chapter number four. Now he's saying, my body is your bread. And my body is going to be the thing that gives you life. And as he uh, is going through this process, one of the things that's fascinating to me in the middle of, we read through the end of um, what we call the Lord's Supper. Verse 30, we see a transition point. But the, the feast, the festivities had ended. I mentioned to you that Gamaliel had made big statement um, that there were three necessities. The bread, the bitter herbs, and the, the lamb. The Passover lamb. Where is the Passover lamb in the book of Matthew. Where's the Passover lamb in the book of Mark? Luke? John? To the best of our knowledge, there was no Passover lamb present at this meal. There was no uh, uh, lamb that was partaken of. Uh, there was nothing there that had been taken and been uh, eaten from. If it was there, then the gospel writers totally left it out, which being a first century recording of a uh, Passover setter would have been absolutely unthinkable because that's like the most important part of the meal is the lamb because the lamb represents the, the sacrifice that was put on the doorposts and how the angel of death, this, uh, this uh, judgment from God would come over the household and would pass 
over that household. The lamb is the Passover thing. Uh, the rest of it is, is great, but the, the lamb is the Passover. It's the thing in the Passover. So why is it absent? Why is it missing? Where is it in the middle of all of this? What does Jesus say when he gives the cup? He said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, under the Passover... Whose blood was used? Well, it was the lamb. It was taken and it was thrown on the altar and it was put on the doorposts. And the blood of the lamb was the blood of the covenant that the Passover was promising uh, would one day be fulfilled. And now as Jesus speaks, he says, hey, this is the blood of my covenant. This is the blood of my covenant. What covenant is he speaking of? Jeremiah 31, verse 34. He says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother things saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. Watch this. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Does that sound vaguely familiar to verse 28? As Jesus says, this is my covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And what is the statement he makes? I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. How many cups of, how many cups they partake of? How many cups? They're supposed to do four, but this appears to be indicating that he's stopping it short. And he's saying, hey, take this. This is the blood of my covenant. What does he say? We'll finish later. We'll finish on the other side. We'll see you when we drink it new in my father's kingdom. You see, in the middle of all of this um, that's taking place, you know what would have been really easy for Jesus to do? It would have been really easy for Jesus to focus on the bitterness of that betrayal, wouldn't it? The bitterness of those, the herbs and the betrayal and all of these things as they're tying it together. It would have been really easy for him to say, oh, one of you is going to betray me and then just let loose on. Is that, is that what Jesus' focus is on this night? Is that what Jesus' focus is? Is he looking at his betrayal and saying, oh, man, these things are coming. Where is Jesus looking at in the middle of all of, over, of these things? He's looking at the reason that he came. He's looking at this Passover. And even now as he institutes this thing, um, as he takes this and he gives it to his disciples. And then later Paul says, keep doing this because it's reminding us of, of that. He's going to come and one day we're all going to sit down together and we're going to feast like you've never feasted before. And so this is a reminder of the things that are yet to come and the even at this moment, the things that to us are past and the things that were yet to come to them. You see, Jesus here isn't focused on the bitterness of the betrayal, but on the reason that he came. And so even as we partake in the Lord's Supper, this is a reminder for us of how God has worked in the past, how God is continuing to work in our lives, and how he will be working when one day all of his promises are kept and fulfilled, and one day we will drink with him anew. In his father's kingdom. 
a great place, a place where there is no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death. But what we see here right now in the middle of all of this is the mission of Jesus is what mattered to him. So the question we need to ask ourselves today is what matters to us? In the middle of all of these things taking place, man, it would have been easy to be distracted. Because we're in the middle of this passage where we're just seeing yes, no, follow, don't, yes, oh man, it's, it's, it's dizzying. And yet at the end of it, where does Jesus leave us? Jesus leaves us, he says, hey, listen, this is the reason that I came. And in fact, I think all of us ought to be reminded consistently of this truth. That faith looks forward. Faith looks forward. Faith, in fact, can't look backwards or it's not faith, is it? What we see is we see that Jesus, even as he is modeling this for his disciples, what's he calling them to? He's not calling them to the the things that he had already done in their lives. He's not saying, hey, remember that time I called the storm? Just have faith in that moment. He's not looking back and saying, hey, hey, uh, no, no, listen, listen, listen. Those moments had an effect on their lives. Don't get me wrong. Those moments mattered. But his faith was calling them to something that they had not seen yet. You look at your life and you say, well, God's brought me through this and God's brought me through that. And God's been faithful and been faithful and been faithful. Awesome. The fact is, is that I believe that as God helps us to grow in our faith, That's not just so we can look back at those things, but it's so that we can take steps forward into what he has still ahead of us. Because if you're anything like me, um, the greatest challenges of life seem to always be that next challenge, that next thing. And sure, we look at the things that have been done in the past, and here we look and we remember these things. This this doesn't remembrance of me are Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as he's echoing what's taking place here. This is a a memory of. But you know what's a memory of? It's a memory of both something that has taken place in our past reminding us of our future. Because when the Jewish individuals would have gathered together around that Passover meal, they're saying my life My story, my identity is bound up in these things. This is who I am. These are my people. And when we gather together as a body of believers, and in no time more significant than when we come together and we partake of the bread and the cup, but any time as we gather together as believers, we're anchoring our story in his story. We're saying, these are my people. This is my God. And it causes us, it ought to cause us to behave today like we believe for tomorrow. You see, this story that we're talking about is not merely a story that takes place in a book that was written thousands of years ago. This is your story if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. This is your identity. And the promise that Jesus makes here of that day when he will drink it new with his followers in his father's kingdom, follow me, that's a promise for you. And what a day that's going to be. And so today, are you living your life in such a way as you're looking forward to the things that God is doing, God is going to do, and the hope that we have in him and in him alone? 
you might be sitting in here today and you might say, I, I, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not a believer in any sense of the word. To which I would say, make that decision. Follow Jesus today. You see this death, the burial, the resurrection that he was about to endure, he did it for you. So your sins could be forgiven. Brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers in the gospel of Jesus, we have a hope. We have a hope. Today, we might see pain, sorrow, heartache, suffering. Man, if you knew this stuff, the people in this room were walking through, I don't know all of it. But man, the stuff that I do know, man, if I told you about, hmm. But there's hope. There's hope. There's a day coming where one day we will sit down at the table with King Jesus. We'll participate. And he'll bless that cup. And we'll all partake. What a day that's going to be.